Please keep Missy Hager and her children and family in your prayers. She lost her mom on Friday quite suddenly and tragically. Um, You will hear more about that later, but keep uh, the Hager family in your prayers. Today, uh, most Sundays actually, depending on how well prepared I am, but today especially I am deeply grateful to be gathered together with you in worship. The time when we worship God, when we hear the word read and proclaimed, where we sing hymns and songs together, where we gather together in fellowship, uh, the church being the church. For 2,000 years, this gathering of church Christians has been a part of our world, sometimes more than others, but nevertheless, regardless of the circumstances, we have gathered to celebrate together, no matter what the world offers. What we do here is proclaim the good news of the gospel. What makes it good news is that unlike all the other news, which is often not so good, which comes to us like a fireworks show, a bright burst, a loud boom, and then it fizzles out until the next round, even more spectacular, happens. What makes the good news different from that news is that the good news is like the sun. Every day it is there, and it is our light, and it illumines our way no matter how dark the clouds. Every single day it is present. The good news is good because no matter what goes on outside there in the world, This news, the good news, is eternal, drawing us together to celebrate, to pray and sing and proclaim. The good news is good news because it is transcendent and infinite. It is a truth that is not temperamental or fearful. It does not come and go like the latest headlines. It is the word of God that Isaiah proclaimed when he said, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And so I stand before you this day enormously grateful that we have been given this word of truth, of hope, this word of God that illumines our way forward no matter the circumstances. Today's word comes to us from the gospel according to Luke. It is the lectionary passage of the week, which means that there was a committee somewhere that knows more about what we should preach than I do who picked this passage, and it shows up every three years. When on Monday I titled it the Ho-Hum Parable, I did so because most of us have been so inundated with it and by it that it no longer carries any weight. It's simply a cliche, the good Samaritan. And on Monday, I wanted to blow some breath back into it. I wanted to 
somehow get us to take off our old glasses and to put on a, a new prescription of lenses that could help us perceive and see something real and vital and important because this passage has become such a ho-hum moral tale that we're called to take care of our neighbors. When this passage was written, a neighbor was basically within walking distance. Now our neighbor is global. Some of that, I think, is why we are suffering from compassion fatigue. What I did not know on Monday, I learned on Friday. Things happen that change our perspective that the preacher does not need to do anything about. Last week was one of those weeks. This passage starts not with the parable itself, but the context, as every text does, to be seen in context. After coming back from a massive mission trip, Jesus having sent out 70 of the disciples to take out into the world the peace of Christ and to heal those who were broken and infirmed and to bring a sense of hospitality and love to those who had understood themselves to be abandoned. When they come back, Jesus says to them, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. May God give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear this text as it comes to us from the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in the 25th verse. Just then, it says, after Jesus had just said to his disciples what I just said, just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus and Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered it with a story, as Jesus so often did, a parable. He said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, 
And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think, Jesus asked the lawyer, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer responded, The one who showed him mercy? And Jesus said, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Which side are you on? The police? The black folk who say that they are being killed without justification? We're the most heavily armed violent society in the history of Western civilization, and we dump this duty on 25-year-olds in police departments. Ed Flynn, the police chief in Milwaukee, said in an interview before Dallas. He went on, the problem for American policing is we're learning the hard way that our political establishment finds it far easier to develop a constituency at the expense of our police than to solve these social problems. In other words, the political establishment, he says, plays politics with every tragic event, stoking the voters rather than doing anything that matters. We know how it works. After these events, conservatives proclaim the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms, Liberals cry for gun control measures. Black Lives Matter will say, I told you so, with every new video release. And the police will say that there is a lot more to the story than just what that particular video segment seems to show. Each time we pick a side and look for evidence to justify ourselves. A lawyer stood up and wanting to justify himself asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And what Jesus gave him was a parable which never so much answers the question as it questions our answers and holds us as Christians to a higher order. It started out with the lawyer being a lawyer. He was a religious lawyer. He knew the law backwards and forwards. He was in a position of power. It starts out with Jesus wanting to test Jesus, excuse me, the lawyer wanting to test Jesus' credibility. The question was, how do you find eternal life? It was a setup. You know the law, Jesus responded. What does it say? Love the Lord your God with all heart, mind, soul, and strength from Deuteronomy, and love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus. You win the daily double, Jesus said. But wanting to win the whole game of Jeopardy, he wants to look even bigger, and so the lawyer asked this question, but who is my neighbor? 
Jesus knew that it was a trap, but instead of springing it, he tells the story. There was a man on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a 3,000-foot descent. It's 9, 12 miles long, who was robbed and thrown into the ditch. We don't get why he was thrown into the ditch. We don't get any of the details. We don't get why he was traveling alone. Everyone knew you're not supposed to travel that road alone. We don't get what happened. We don't get why he was attacked or when. All we get is that he's in the ditch. There is no video. Two religious people ride by. One, a priest, the other, a Levite, see him in the road and keep going. We don't get why they kept going. We conjecture that maybe they were on uh, her in a hurry to get somewhere, or that if they touched a body, presumably dead, that they would be defiled, which went against the holiness code. But a Samaritan wanders by, rides by, and sees him and stops. Jesus said that the Samaritan had pity on him. The actual Greek meaning of that is that his bowels ached. His stomach hurt because of his compassion. A Samaritan. The most, the biggest enemy of the Jews. What many of us used to call Native Americans in our country, he was a half-breed. A no-count on the wrong side of the tracks, we might hear in the South. There are an infinite number of names that we have used to alienate and objectify those other people that we do not approve of. Maybe today, if Jesus was telling the passage, he would say that it was not a Samaritan, but a Muslim who happened by. And out of compassion, he stops, takes the threat on himself by so doing, cleans his wounds with wine and oil, which was expensive, throws him on the back of his ride, takes him to the nearest inn, sleeps with him and cares for him that night, and the next day hands the innkeeper two days' wages, promising to come back and pay more if needed. Now, which of these was a neighbor to the man who fell in the ditch, Jesus asked the lawyer. And convicted, the lawyer responded, the one who showed him mercy? He couldn't even say the Samaritan. Yep. Now, go and do likewise. I don't know if you caught that. The man in the ditch is not the neighbor that Jesus is singling out. This is way more than a moral story about just taking care of our neighbor. The man in the ditch is not the focus. It's the Samaritan who ends up being the neighbor, the one who showed mercy. The one who cares for those in trouble. This is what makes us neighbors. We help each other. We cannot help and save the whole world. We cannot suffer for the whole world. Jesus Christ has done that. 
But we can, in our neighborliness, be somehow the presence of Jesus Christ to those that we happen on every single day. The surprise is that the one you would least expect to be it, the Samaritan, ends up being the real neighbor, not the lawyer, not the priest, not the Levite, the Samaritan. Two weeks ago, I was coming home from Walgreens. I went the back road that runs into the park, and I saw a car on the side of the road with an elderly woman standing beside it. Wanting to be a good Samaritan, I rolled down my window and asked, are you having problems? Yes, she said, my front tire is flat. I looked at it and saw it was. I said, do you have AAA? No, she said, I I should have joined it, but I never did. Do you have anyone you can call? She said, uh, I said, no. Uh, She said, no, uh, I don't. I pulled over, uh, got out, and I said, do you you know if you have a, a spare tire? I really don't know, she said. She might have been 80 or so. I said, well, can we, can we look in your trunk? So she opened it, and it was packed to the gills of stuff. So we had to pull everything in her trunk out and put it on the side of the road, and I figured out how to unlock the latch in the trunk and find there a spare tire. And then I rummaged around and found the tire jack uh, and, and put it together under the car and began to jack it up. And I got it all the way up, and then I tried to get the lug nuts off, And it was so hard that I had to stand on the tire jack to do it. But then I remembered that I was up uh, off the ground and that what I should have done was undo the lug nuts before I raised the car up. And so I then began to pump it back down and she's going, I'm so sorry, I am so sorry, thank you for helping, I'm so sorry. And as I got it finally back down... uh, During that time, five or six different people had driven by, stopped and said, do you need any help? Being the proud man that I am, uh, no, I I can do this, thanks a lot. Interestingly, all six of them looked like day laborers. I got it back down on the ground, stood on the lug wrench to loosen the lugs, and by that time, all of a sudden garbage truck had driven by and stopped in front of her and two African-American men got out and came over and said, let us do it. <laughs> really? You, you got a route to run. I mean, I, please, let us do it. And so they took over doing it the right way, got the tire changed, put the stuff back in the trunk, And I am absolutely dumbfounded that these two African-American men with a full schedule at 5 o'clock on Friday evening had stopped to come by and help us. Why would I be surprised by that? When they were through, I asked them, are you guys Christians by any chance? Well, yeah, how did you know? Just guessing, I said. They happened on us 
as I happened on her and saw that we needed help. I'm always amazed by the many times that this pops up when I least expect it. Someone I don't think has the wherewithal or the opportunity to do it steps in and does something incredibly Christ-like that takes us completely by surprise. It always happens at some risk, of course. It always costs something. I'm not just talking about time and money. But if we don't do this when we have a chance, it costs us way more. In an editorial by Charles Blow, I think it was Saturday, he says it as well as can be said. He writes, We must see all unwarranted violence for what it is, a corrosion of culture. I know well that when people speak of love and empathy and honor in the face of violence, it can feel like meeting hard power with soft, like there is inherent weakness in an approach that leans so heavily on things so ephemeral and even cliched. But that is simply an illusion fostered by those of little faith. Anger and vengeance and violence are exceedingly easy to access and almost effortlessly unleashed. The higher calling, the harder trial, is the belief in the ultimate moral justice and the inevitable victory of righteousness over wrong. This requires an almost religious faith in fate, and that can be hard for some to accept, but accept it we must. The moment any person comes to accept as justifiable an act of violence upon another, whether physical, spiritual, or otherwise, that person has already lost the moral battle, battle, even if he is currently winning the physical one. When we all can see clearly that the ultimate goal is harmony and not hate, rectification and not retribution, we have a chance to see our way forward. But we all need to start here and now by doing this simple thing, seeing every person we encounter as fully human, deserving every day to make it home to the people he loves. He finishes with, this is a time when communities, institutions, movements, and even nations are tested. Will the people of moral clarity, good character, and righteous cause be able to drown out the chorus of voices that seek to use each dead body as a societal wedge? Is Charles Blow a Christian? I don't know or sounds like one. Ily Wiesel, the most notable survivor of the Holocaust, died last week, too. He lost his parents and his sisters during that terrible, terrible, dark time. He was set free from the Buchenwald prison camp when he was 16. He devoted the rest of his life to making sure that the world did not forget in an interview online, 
I'm not sure who was interviewing him. He was asked, how does one find faith after what you went through? And he responded, it is very difficult. It wasn't easy because faith in God was tested during those times. It was a crisis. But it was not a crisis from the outside of faith. It was a crisis against faith from within me. Against God, but I, I could not divorce God finally. Which prompted me to write a letter to God a few years ago saying it was time to make peace. I don't know if you saw that letter, you should. He went on to say, actually, faith in man was more difficult after I realized what man is capable of, what happened to humanity, what happened to culture. The day I discovered that the arch murderers of children had college degrees was one of the darkest days of my life. My God, how could they, he said. But what was the alternative? To give up on man? To give up on humanity? And then what? The interviewer asked, were there any specific events you recall that helped to restore your faith in mankind? Small things, Wazell said, like I discovered we had a maid. She was illiterate. A marvelous maid, like a member of our family. She came into the ghetto after we had been moved there, sneaked into the ghetto bringing food, And the night before we were put on the train, she came to plead with my father, Come, I have a hut in the mountains. There are Russians nearby who will protect you. Come, let me take care of you. Had we known of the death camps, we would have gone into the forest with that maid. That maid, he said, was a Christian. She saved the honor of Christianity. Good news of the gospel comes to us from the words of a Jew. Go figure, such is the way of Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever.